Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Well, happy new year, Missio Day. I hope this holiday season has been one that has given you rest, a uh, time of reflection, a chance to be with your family and friends and people that, that you care about in your life. Um, we are excited about this new year as a church. We're hopeful in what God is going to do. And I'm excited to be able to preach with you uh, and to you this morning a little bit about my journey the last few months and what God might be challenging us to do as a community of faith in this next year. Will you pray with me with your hands open to what God uh, has for us today? God, uh, with our hands open to you, we want to hear from you today. Uh, we want to be filled. Would you fill us and would you speak to us? Amen. So in early October, uh, things started to really come to a head for me. I felt a lot of frustration, not frustration at, at Missio Day, uh, not frustration with Missio Day Uptown or staff members at church, but just kind of a frustration about the, the nature of church in America. I just, I, I mean, there had been countless uh, men and women that have had moral failures, that have left their churches. Their, I, I felt like the church had uh, sort of sold its soul to, for power and, and money. And I just was depressed. And I began to kind of think, is, like, is this even, this whole Christian thing, is it real? Like, if this is the result of the faith that I've inherited, if this, the worldview and faith that I've been taught about Jesus led to the, the reality of the church in the United States as it is today. Uh, do I even want to be part of that? Is that something that's, is it even true anymore? Uh, do I believe this? And I, I, th I think that is a question that probably all of us ask. And I got to the point where I was so uh, kind of frustrated and, and like it almost led to some doubt in my heart of like, is this real? Can I really believe all the things that I've, in, like I've inherited from these people that now seem to be so far off, at least in my perspective, from the way of Jesus? And there's this term, it's called the crystallization of discontent. It's a term that's not just religious or spiritual. It's something that you can, you can really find in every area of life. And it's the idea that most people are discontent. Most people are unhappy with certain aspects of their lives, but most people just don't do anything about it. But there's this point in time when that discontent uh, you know, becomes so strong, becomes so uh, overwhelming that it kind of crystallizes in this moment. And there's a breaking point. And you just refuse to live that way any longer. And so you'll hear stories of people that maybe were um, manipulated in cults and brainwashed into believing something that come to this realization of what they're involved in and leave. Or maybe it's an abusive relationship and you realize that person is never going to change the way that they're acting and therefore you should get out of that relationship. I mean, there's countless areas and examples of this. Uh, it could be a job that you uh, are so unhappy with that there's this crystallization of discontent. You say, I don't even care any longer if I don't have a job or if I need to do something that is much more menial than the job I had before, I cannot take the job that I'm currently doing any longer. And I felt like I was getting to that point in my life that I needed to ask the question about my faith. Do I really believe this? Do I really want to give my life to this? And as I began to reflect on that and ask those questions, two things were really revealed to me, I believe, um, by the, the Holy Spirit. The first is this. 
I love Jesus. Like nothing had changed in that reality. I loved how, I love how Jesus lived. I love what he stood for. I'm enthralled by his moral vision for life. I think the incarnation is the most incredible act in history and makes so much sense of the world that doesn't make sense any other way. Like the suffering and the pain and the goodness and, and love and all the things that the scriptures teach about. Beyond that, in, in a really tangible, objective way, I believe that the resurrection actually happened, that Jesus conquered the grave, that he defeated sin and death and Satan on the cross when he conquered the grave. And so objectively, I believe this truth about Jesus. And so I couldn't just walk away. Like that has real implications for our lives if we believe in the resurrection. But there also was a subjective reality to the, that question that I was asking. And the, the thing that the Holy Spirit reminded me is that I had experienced God in my life, like the Holy Spirit's power and goodness and love in my life countless times. And it was too powerful for me to deny. I was reminded of this once again, uh, in the same season of October, my son Mays was going to go into surgery the next day to get uh, tubes put in his ears. And it was a pretty, uh, it is a pretty mild surgery. You, you do go under, so it's a little scary for parents. Um, and so we were praying, we, we were praying that, uh, that the surgery would go well, that there'd be no complications, that Mays' hearing wouldn't prove that he'd be able to uh, not have as much trouble hearing in class and all these things. We were laying these before as a family, uh, God. And the very end, of the, the time of prayer, my daughter, Senny, who's six years old, just spontaneously decides to pray uh, for my back. And uh, she has known that I had struggled with back pain for a number of years at that point. And uh, it would come and, and go to some degree. It always was stiff or hurt a little bit, but there were seasons where it was excruciating pain. And I was in one of those seasons. I had experienced for like two months in a row constant pain in my back that would keep me up at night, where I'd have to take medicine to try to, to deal with it, where I'd be doing stretches and strength exercises to try to make it better. And really, it would only, uh, you know, alleviate the pain for a little bit. And so I remember being kind of broken by this moment of my daughter with this like real faith, no question, not like, hey, God, would you, I really hope that you'll do this, but God, heal my dad's back. In Jesus' name. And I want to tell you the truth. Like, and this is no joke. I'm not making this up. I woke up that next day, and I have not had back pain since that moment. It's been two and a half months. And it kind of was this uh, waking me from my slumber, this, this amazing faith, like from like the, the, the words of babes, right? Like we'll hear um, from the Holy Spirit. And I heard in that moment this awakening. She prayed for healing, and I was healed. And what, I, what crystallized in that moment for me was that not, I, I had been kind of this growing um, discontent and frustration with everybody else. But I think that what was really happening is that God wanted to do something in me. That I was really just as much as, as discontent with everybody else and frustrated with everybody else. I was frustrated with my state of spiritual uh, reality. And so as I think about our church and I think about this new year and what I think God might have for us, I was drawn to the passage in Ephesians 3. And these realizations in my own life led me to this passage because it's a prayer that Paul is pay, praying for the church at Ephesus. He loves this church. Uh, he is, uh, when, he, when he decides to leave Ephesus um, in the, the book of Acts, it talks about him, how he's never going to become, be able to go back there again, but that he loves the church that he would be praying for the church. And so he sends this letter and it's a prayer about what he ho his hope is for that church. 
in this next season. Beginning in verse 14, it says this, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray out of, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that, that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So I want to identify three things that Paul prays for here. The first one is this. He says that out of God's, Jesus' glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And there's this, um, in the Christian life, you know, they talk about loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And really, like, I think that the, this image that Paul uses of this kind of inner being is the encompassment of all of that. So what I mean by is that there is a part of you, there's an inner core, there's an inner being, there's this essence, kind of like the deepest part of who you are where your identity is truly formed and, and like the truest of yourself is there. That place, that core, that inner place, that essence is what the Holy Spirit wants to get his hands on. The Spirit wants to work in that inner life, that inner being, that core of who you are. And God doesn't want to just get his hands on that. He wants to do it with power. He wants to give you power. He wants to, out of the overflow of his riches in that space. The second thing that Paul prays for is that you being rooted and established in love, you may have the power to grasp the love of Christ, a love that surpasses mere knowledge. Here Paul is saying that you have been established in love. Essentially he's saying you know that God is love. You have that knowledge. You understand, like you've, you've, you have this basis of understanding that God is love. But I want you to experience the love of God. And this is different. There's an objective knowledge of the love of God. You can read it in the Bible. It says God, uh, you know, loves you, like the, that he, you know, gave up his own life for your sake. I mean, there's multiple instances of the love of God being on display and shouting from the passages of Scripture. But there's also a subjective kind of love, a love that's beyond just mere knowledge, but that you feel in your inner being. And both of these things are important and they work together. If you only have the subjective one, it may lead to emotions in a moment, but it's not rooted in any historical truth. It may just feel, you may feel this warm sense of, of some being out there and you don't know who it is. But if it's the only objective, it leads to a dry and even a pragmatic faith this devoid of real experience of God's power and presence. And if you want to be changed by God's love, if you want to know the width and, and length and height and depth of God's love, it's something that you must experience as well as simply know about. And the last thing that Paul prays for is that you and that, and that I and that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's an incredible statement. Let me read that again for you. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. 
Can you imagine feeling the presence of God like that? Uh, it's actually, I was going to say a few years ago, it's actually been like a decade now. Uh, I was living in Michigan and I was working with a lot of high school students. And I remember one of them in particular that always seemed very miserable at our youth group. Uh, he hated his life at church and he, and he, had, he seemed to hate his life in general. Um, I kind of think, uh, not kind of, I should say, I think his parents made him come uh, and he never once spoke about having a relationship with God. But whenever we did have kind of a, a time together when we'd go to lunch or we'd hang out, um, he talked about, and we talked about faith at all, he talked about how restrictive faith was, how impossible he felt it was to live the way of Jesus, how he hated all of the rules. And I just felt for him because, um, and it wasn't like this judgmental thing, I just, I felt bad that, that like this religion, like whatever has been being like put on him was killing him. The pressure to go to church and to be a Christian without this real experience of God's love and affection for him without experiencing the, the fullness of God, without experiencing the presence of God, was making him miserable. Charles Spurgeon writes, be half a Christian and you shall have enough religion to make you miserable. Be holy, a Christian, and you shall be full of joy. The scriptures speak about experiencing the presence of God a lot. I mean, we have this instance in the Old Testament with Moses where he says, I, God, I won't go anywhere without your presence. Like, I'm not going to go to battle without you. I'm not going to stand up to this king without you. I won't travel anywhere without your presence. And this really is the essence of religion, is to have more and more and more of God in our lives, at least the Christian religion. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor here in the city of Chicago for many years, says God's presence is the central fact of Christianity. The heart of the Christian message is that God is waiting for us to push into conscious awareness of his presence. A perusal of the scriptures testify over and over again that Tozer is right. God comes to be present with his people. And I think that that line, this idea of God coming to be with his people is what I want to um, extend from uh, Christmas and Advent into this new year. The last line in, in, in included into this passage says, now to him, to God, who can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine or think. And it makes me um, think, like, what do we really want? What do I really want in my life? And I just realized that my desires and my wants and the things that I'm dreaming about are so often so much smaller than what God would have for me. Sometimes I just simply am too shallow, that I don't have much imagination, that my dreams for what God might actually do in my own life and in my family's life and in our church are simply too small. I think that there is a lie that we buy into it especially happens around middle age. I think in like your mid-30s particularly. You start to lose some of your idealism. You start to realize that life isn't everything that you thought it was going to be, that it's a bit harder than you expected. And the lie is, is that this is as good as it's going to get. And I believe that that is a lie that, that Satan would have you believe. That whatever you're experiencing in your relationship with God right now, uh, maybe you're doing really well. God wants you to have even more. When he, that's, that's the reality when we're talking about fullness. The fullness of God is just like we're just getting a taste. We're just getting a, a, a preamble of what is to come in the fullness of 
God. Whatever's going on in your own life, the bad habits, the dysfunctional things in your, in your family, the blow-ups, like, there is more that God wants to give you. There's more that God might have for you. And I think whenever we start talking about you know, like the fullness of the presence of God. Whenever we start talking about these spiritual things, I think there are some people, and some people are like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. Other people, I think, are skeptics. Like, they're a little bit like, you know what? I've been part of churches that talked a lot about the presence of God. This kind of like super spirituality that, you know, if you just have more faith, that, that you'll have more miracles happen. Or if you just had more faith, then you'd um, have like this, this commodity of life with God that I have and that you don't have. That if you just had more faith that you could speak in tongues or perform miracles or hear words from God. Or maybe it's along the same lines, but if, if you just had more faith, you're, you know, you would experience healing in your life. If you just had more faith, you'd have more prosperity and success and, 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 and influence and you won't get sick and you'll be all these things, right? And so I think sometimes we have this narrative of the presence of God that, that is uh, in the fullness of God that, that makes it seem like um, if your life isn't going well, that somehow you're missing the mark. And I don't think that's at all what Paul is saying when he writes all these letters in the New Testament from prison, right? I can promise you that the fullness of God in our present age does not mean that your life will be easy or wildly successful or that you won't get sick or that you won't have depression or that you won't suffer. And I don't think that you can believe your way into spiritual gifts as those are given by the Holy Spirit. But there is an awakening that can happen in us. And I think that this is what Paul is talking about. A joy, a peace, a deep sense of the love of God a power from the Holy Spirit, a resilience and courage and compassion for others that comes alive in our very self, in our inner core, and core in our being. There's a passion that can be birthed in our spirit for the things of God and the presence of God. There's this falling away of other things that seem less significant and a striving for and a longing for our lives to count in a way that maybe they, we didn't want them to count before. Things begin to put, be put in the right perspective, in the right order. This is what happens when God's power and God's presence comes into our lives. Our time is recalculated. Our outlook can change. Our ability to deal with suffering and trials, to develop perseverance and faith becomes a reality. I think the other pushback when we start talking about the presence of God is that sometimes people have experienced large dry spells in their faith. Some people will look back to the Bible even they'll say, look, there are times where there's tens, even hundreds of years where God's presence does not seem to be a reality, does not seem to be very close where they're waiting for God to come and rescue them from slavery, where the exodus is, where the exile is still in, in its very midst. And there are some of those. There are lots of those. But I do think that something shifts in the New Testament. And after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, I'm not sure that I believe that the Holy Spirit is absent like that any longer. I think that this verse and these verses in Ephesians is telling us that God wants to freely give us an overflow of his power to experience his love and to have more and more of himself. So that's my hope for you this new year. Like beyond all the presence and the weight loss plans and the plans to be uh, more social or the plans to uh, take up a new hobby, I am asking God to give him uh, more of himself to you. 
that, that we would be struck by this eruption of God's presence in our life. And I believe that, at least in my own life, as I've reflected on this, four things really need to take place for this to be a reality. The first one is, is and I want to be clear, this is not a, a to-do list, like necessarily just to, like, oh, there's, here's one more thing that you have to do now. I'm just saying this is what I think it takes for there to be an opportunity for God to really move in our lives. The first is, is a desire. Um, I think when I have this like, kind of um, crystallization of discontent, and I started to realize it wasn't just everybody else, but it actually was me. Like there's something going inside of me. Um, I realized that I didn't even have the desire uh, to want more of God. And so my prayer had to be, God, would you even give me the desire to want more of you? Would you even give me the desire to, to, to want you, give me a hunger, give me this, this passion for your presence in your life? So we have to, some of us already want that. And so we just have to continue to want and to ask God to make that happen in our lives. Second, I think the word I would use is open. We have to be open when we take this posture of wanting the fullness of God, wanting to experience God's love more in our lives. We have to be open for God to make us pretty uncomfortable. I don't think there's been a time in human history when there's been an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of love and power and presence when it doesn't change people's lives dramatically. Where God doesn't ask us to do things that we would have never dreamed that we would be doing previously. The third thing I'd say is time. I'm convinced in my own life that I can't experience what God or what Paul wrote um, to the church at Ephesus, or what Moses and David and Daniel and Peter and Paul and many others experienced in the Old Testament and New Testament without creating space, and I mean lots of space, for more of God. To see God at work all around me, to have his presence in my life, to be present with him and with uh, with, with the, the church, I, I need to create space in my life for God to act. So I would say, hey, go to counseling, travel, eat with friends, watch TV, read a book, have a good drink, get your hair done. All these things are good. Keep doing those things. But would you be selfish enough to create the time to have more time with God? As I was thinking about that this week, I wonder if like what set, may set us apart from like, everyone else says Christians are just like everybody else. I wonder if time is a way that we can distinguish ourselves. Like what if our, the, the, time, the time factor in our lives, like the time that we devote to just uh, running after Jesus could be a defining mark for us. Not just the showing up at church on Sunday morning whenever we get back to that or watching a video once a week, but what if the defining mark of our lives was this pursuit of God, this hunger and thirsting after what God would have in our lives and devoting time and space in our lives because it's, it's, we believe it's better. We believe the fullness of God and the experience of the love of God is better than anything else the world could offer. And the last thing I think, word I would use is focus. Um, I mean, I, I'm addicted. Uh, I, I know most of you are. Um, I wake up and grab my phone before bed. I look at my phone. I read my phone. It's hard for me not to look at it at dinner. When I'm in conversations with people and I hear a buzz, it's really hard for me to not look at it. I mean, there's just this, this sense, this overwhelming sense of always needing to be connected to being distracted, to being unfocused. 
Uh, I sit down to write this sermon even, and I'm just as distracted. Things are pulling me in all these different directions. Oh, I got a new email. Oh, I got a new text. Oh, I forgot to do this thing on my to-do list. Let me put this thing off. It's sort of like um, kids. I don't know, some of you don't have kids, but maybe you have a niece or a nephew, or you have a close friend that has children. And... um, if you've ever observed kids when they're watching shows, particularly those that don't always get to watch them, like ones that, that, that like get to watch them maybe uh, s- certain times of the day, and I think it really kicks in when they're like six, seven, eight years old, um, they can be watching a, sh- a show and there's almost nothing that you could do to distract them from it. They're so enthralled with whatever is happening. I can go up to my kids and I can clap as loud as I can. I can yell their name, Maze, Senny. Almost nothing will distract them. I have to put myself in between them and the TV. I have to turn off their iPhone with my finger. I have to yell loud enough that they, they, can, they can hear me uh, over whatever it is that they're focused on. And as I was thinking about how hard it is to distract my kids from their distractions of their TV shows, I wonder... Uh, What if God, the good father, is waiting to spend time with us to show us his love, to show us his affection, to show us his delight, to give us his wisdom, to give us this, this inner peace and joy and delight that we've been longing for, and he's shouting for us, but we're so distracted, we're so caught up with everything else. There's a passage in the Bible where it says, that when you pray, you should go into a room and close the door. And the, the meaning of that passage is actually so that you're, you're not praying for everyone else to see so that you can you know, kind of puff yourself up for how spiritual you are. That's the main meaning. But I just want to be uh, uh, clear that I think there's a second meaning that we can draw from it. And that it is that, hey, go into your room and close the door and you can begin to lose some of those distractions. Go uh, take a walk by uh, Lake Michigan. Go to the mountains. Go to whatever place you experience God and leave the distractions behind because I really believe that God wants to do something in us this, uh, this year. I believe the greatest gift that we can give ourselves is um, to give ourselves more to God, to, to want God in our lives, to um, begin to... Uh, open up our hearts to the things that God might want to do in our lives to give the space and time for the things of God and to lose some of the distractions. And I, I really truly believe this with all my heart that God is not a God that is far, that is distant. The deists have it wrong. God is near. At Christmas, we just celebrated a God that came in, in, incarnate to be with us and that he has left a helper, the Holy Spirit, who wants to give us his power in our inner being, a love that we can experience in a tangible way in our own lives, in the very fullness of God. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.